You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. I'm going to direct your attention to our text at hand, and that's Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read verses 17 through 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. God in heaven, we do come to you as needy creatures, knowing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus by faith, thanking you for the salvation and praying for the power of God to rest upon us as the word is taught and preached. It is the inerrant, authoritative, binding word of God, the law of laws. It's the norm of norms because you're the king of kings. And so help us to heed it. And for those who are among us who don't know Christ, would they be saved and would backsliders be restored? Would your church be strengthened and would all the hearing and preaching of your word please, dear God, be anointed? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Holy Week is where we are as we look at the narrative of Matthew's gospel. This is leading up to the Passion of Christ, Passion Week. We found that the religious leaders are now plotting to kill him. They're looking for the opportunity, and in in fact, they found the opportunity in Judas Iscariot, the traitor. The plot to kill Jesus was on the, it was hatched on the Tuesday evening after Jesus had been preaching in the temple all day and then preached on the Mount of Olives. The chief priests, the leaders, the people that um, were in the higher echelons of society, plotted to kill Jesus right after they listened to his preaching. They were so enraged by it. This passage today occurs on the Thursday. The crucifixions on the Friday. So, the plot, Tuesday, this passage, Thursday, crucifixion, Good Friday. Don't know what happened on Wednesday, but so we jump from Tuesday to Thursday here. And early on on this Thursday morning, I suspect, Jesus instructs the disciples to prepare the Passover meal. Passover season is upon them, And they need to prepare the Passover. And from that, there's three points that I'm providing to outline today's text. One, the disciples' meekness. Two, the Savior's delight. And three, the pursuit of obedience. We see a really warm-hearted and encouraging text this morning as we see this little story leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as we learn of our Savior's heart and of His goodness. And we actually see a really good side of the disciples in this story that uh, deserves to be imitated. We'll see the disciples' meekness, 
number one. Number two, the Savior's delight. And number three, the pursuit of holiness, or the pursuit of obedience, rather. There's, there's a couple of applications that come to mind as I look at this text, and one of them is, is that disciples offer to us a very good example of meekness. This is a high point in their discipleship, and this is an example that's worth pursuing. And with their example of meekness, we see what really delights the Savior. And He delights being with His people, loves being with His people. And so we see this example of meekness and we see the delight of the Savior in the presence of His people unfold in these three points that I mentioned, the disciples' meekness, the Savior's delight, and the pursuit of obedience, the disciples' meekness, the Savior's delight, and the pursuit of obedience. Let's look first at the disciples' weakness, please, or meekness, rather, the disciples' meekness, not weakness, meekness, they're distinct. I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding as we consider what it is to be meek. So many think that meekness seems you're, means you're a compliant person when it comes to your dealing with people, whether good or bad, or you're a quiet person, perhaps. That's what it means, some might think. But meekness, as it is defined in Scripture and presented to us in the Word of God, is a heart that yearns to follow Christ with childlike faith. Meekness is when your heart is like putty in the Savior's hands. You come to Him and you say, Jesus, teach me. I want to learn. And then you follow Him. That's meekness. And like us, I suspect this has been your experience as a Christian, a disciple. These disciples, like us, have high points and low points in their discipleship. There's times of failure, and there's times of great victory in their walk with Jesus Christ. Imagine if you're anything like me, you've experienced the same. There's been times where you have done good things for Jesus, and you have sensed His presence with you, and that has been a great blessing to you, and it's been a great testimony to His worthiness. But then you've likely experienced times of failure. Well, the disciples were like that also. This is a high point. This is a time of victory, and this is a story in the life of the disciples that is worth emulating, worth following. That's why I slowed it down in part for these three verses this Sunday because I wanted to point out how touching I think so much of this story is. Of course, as I said, this was on a Thursday. Verse 17 tells us, as we look at the disciples' meekness, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They wanted to prepare the Passover. So verse 17 carries on. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us? Prepare for you to eat the Passover. Now, the Passover was the feast of the unleavened bread, and so I, I need to explain this for you. 
what's going on is they ask Jesus to prepare the Passover. It's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover kind of go together. And they're Old Testament celebrations, Old Testament festivals that the Bible instructed the disciples, or at least the people of the Old Testament, to obey. They had various feasts and festivals throughout the year. And one of those feasts and festivals was the feast of the Passover, and it went together with the unleavened bread. And here they are, the disciples are with Christ, and they want to keep the feasts properly. They desire to keep them as they've been instructed, and they desire to keep them in a way that accommodates their Lord. So this is instructive to us. There's some details that go into these feasts, into the preparation and execution of the feasts themselves. There's some particular details that must be followed, and the disciples are very careful to desire to and uphold these details. And that tells me something. They want to follow God's orders and design for these feasts. You say, well, what's the big deal about following God's plan for making a supper, making a meal for people? Well, what's important is that God had instructed them to do it. And God instructs us to do something we ought to follow through and we ought to execute properly. We got no business messing around with what he's properly laid out, and our business is simply to obey. And the disciples, they want to obey. And that's meekness. That's meekness. It's a desire to obey the Savior in all things. But I should explain what these celebrations were and what they represent. In order to explain that, I'm going to look at the initiation of these festivals in Exodus 12 for a moment. And in Exodus 12, we find the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover discussed and ordered by God in preparation for the exodus from Egypt. So the Hebrews had been slaves for many years in Egypt. God is getting ready to execute His great deliverance. And as He's preparing to execute His great deliverance, He tells the people to prepare meals, teaches them how to prepare meals, and teaching them how to prepare these meals, He tells them that these meals shall be participated in and honored by them and their children and their children's children. And in preparation for the day of the Passover, the families had to fetch a lamb. In fact, the head of the household, the father, had to fetch a lamb on the 10th day of the month. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3 says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. This lamb, having been fetched on the 10th day, is to be killed, slaughtered on the 14th day. Verse 6 of Exodus 12 says, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so on the fourteenth day, when they killed their lambs at twilight, they would have taken the blood of the lamb, and they would have painted their door over their doorways. And the blood would stay there on their doorways, and then that evening during the first Exodus, God passed over Egypt, 
and God killed the firstborn son of every family that didn't have the blood on their doorways. So the people that had faith in God put the blood on their doorways, and their sons were spared. There was nobody killed by God in their household. But the families that did not have the blood on their doorways, their firstborn sons were killed by God. It was a judgment upon them. There was great weeping and wailing in Egypt. Pharaoh himself lost his own son. And that caused, it provoked Pharaoh, and it provoked the Egyptians to basically push the Hebrews out of the land. And pushing them out of the land, they went into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They were free from slavery. So it was the blood of the lamb that led to their freedom from slavery as that was painted on their doorways. And this, the execution of the lamb, the slaughter of the lamb, sorry, the slaughter of the lamb, began the feast of the unleavened bread. So the Passover lamb leads to the feast of the unleavened bread. Chapter 12, verse 15 of Exodus says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of all of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off Israel. And that lasted, they weren't allowed to eat leavened bread for seven days. Verse 18 of Exodus 12 says, In the first month, from the 14th day of the month, that evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month. So four or seven days they weren't allowed to eat it. And the reason for this is that when the Hebrews left Egypt, they left the Egyptian leaven in Egypt and didn't take the leaven of Egypt with them to leaven their loaves. It's an interesting concept. It was, a, it was a sign, a symbol by God that they weren't to take their leaven with them. Any of you that's done any baking, you know that leaven, to leaven the loaf, you use a live culture. And that live culture multiplies itself over time, and, and then you take a little piece of that live culture, you work its way into the loaf, and it, and it, and it leavens the loaf, it, it lightens the loaf. Because of the gases that the culture produces, is the, uh, is it, is it multiplies within the loaf, as is it, is it leavens it. And I've been told that if you go to various European cities where they've been using different types of leaven for generation, every city or every community will have a different taste to its bread. And the reason they'll have a different taste to their bread, one of the reasons is, is because they all have their own culture of leaven. If you go to various bakeries that have been around for years, you'll find this. Their loaves taste different than other bakeries. Why? Because they all use the same culture of leaven, and they let that culture multiply. They put it in their loaves. The loaves, the loaves expand with the leaven, and on and on it goes, and the leaven multiplies, and they continue to use that same culture. And so this was God's way of telling them that when they leave Egypt, you will no longer taste the taste of the bread of slavery. Here forward, you will taste the bread of freedom, and you leave the taste of slavery behind in Egypt. No Egyptian leaven will be allowed within your midst. And so as a memorial to this, they didn't eat leaven for seven days after the Passover. Now the Passover itself, the sacrifice of the lamb, there was 200 and the, the historian Josephus tells us that during the time of Christ, so moving on from the Exodus account that I was in back up to Matthew 26, as you talk about the disciples' meekness and preparing the sacrifice and preparing this feast, 
the historian Josephus tells us that at the time of Christ, there were 200, about 250,000 lambs sacrificed every Passover. Once a year, the people would bring into town 250,000 lambs. And they all had to be slain within a few hours in the mid-afternoon. And so you can imagine tens of thousands of lambs being slain in a few hours, and the blood would soak the floor. I mean, I worked in a, I worked in a slaughterhouse and when I was in, just finished Bible college, and we'd do like 2,500 head of cattle a day. That was a lot. But you're talking about over 100,000 within a few hours slaughtered in one place. Imagine the blood that was just pouring out of them all over the place. And they drained the blood into the Kidron Valley. And there was so much blood that was being drained into the Kidron Valley that it stained the valley with crimson for, for quite a while after the Passover. And the temple itself, because there was, it was about one lamb per 10 people. You had to have a quorum of 10 people to, for the lamb. And so there would have been millions of people coming into Jerusalem, and so the temple itself was crowded and busy. Each family would send two members of the family in to slaughter the lambs, and all of these lambs were being slaughtered within a few hours. They would have prepared the supper having, having slaughtered the lamb. And so they, they have to get their lamb, they go down to the crowded temple, they slaughter the lamb in the temple that's soaked with blood. They leave the temple, they find their place where they have to eat the lamb, then they have to cook the lamb, and they prepare the supper. William Hendrickson describes the preparation of the supper after the slaughter. He says, A room of sufficient size must be obtained, and everything in connection with this room and its furniture must be arranged. Besides, purchases must be made of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, wine, etc. The lamb must be made ready for use. The sauce must be prepared. So with all of those crowds and the busyness and the blood and the preparation of the meal, all of this in one day, some of you might ask, why all the hassle? Why all the detail? Why all of the work? It's because God taught them to do it. And, and when God teaches you to do something, you follow Him in detail. You, you look for what He wants you to do and you say how and what and when and you do it. God taught them. And, and this displays a meekness on the part of the disciples. They're ready to celebrate the Passover. Their hearts are putty. They want to do what God wants. And they come to Jesus knowing that He wants to do what God wants. And they ask Him where they should prepare the Passover. Now having explained what the Passover is and what the preparation looks like, what I want to do right now, before I move on to my next point, I'm talking about the disciples' meekness and their desire to obey God. What I want to do right now is I want to take you on a little bit of a rabbit trail. So I'm going on a little trail. When I get back from that trail, I'll let you know. But I'm going to do a little sideshow over here for a minute. And the reason I have to go down this little rabbit trail is because I want to note an apparent, apparent, keyword, discrepancy between the first three Gospels and the fourth Gospel. So there is an apparent discrepancy between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, and what is said in the fourth Gospel, John. So that's my rabbit trail. So let me explain what's going on. 
This text that we look at today, along with Mark and Luke, indicate that the Passover meal was on the Tuesday and Christ was crucified on the Friday. That's what we've been taught. However, John 18 and 19 seem to indicate that Christ was led, well, this is true, this is right, Christ was led to Caiaphas' house seemingly before the Passover, and that the crucifixion occurs on the day of the preparation. So whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke teach us that the preparation was before the day of the crucifixion, John tells us that the crucifixion was during the preparation of the Passover, or he was being led to the crucifixion during the preparation of the Passover. So there's a seeming discrepancy. And people who use this, so doubt in your mind as to the validity of Scripture and whether Scripture is an error and so on. So that's why I want to go down this rabbit trail here. Now, there's a very simple explanation to this that makes a lot of sense. And that is that it appears from the historical record that the Galileans of northern Judea, where Jesus and his disciples were from, considered the Passover to be sunrise Thursday to sunrise Friday. Whereas the people of southern Judea, which would be Jerusalem and all the fancy people, considered Passover to be sunset Thursday to sunset Friday. So their interpretation of the Passover seemed to differ. The people from the north of the country thought it was sunrise Thursday to sunrise Friday. The people of the south of the country thought it was sunset Thursday to sunset Friday. And so the Jews of the south would have considered the Friday the day of preparation, whereas the Jews of the north would have considered Thursday the day of preparation, which explains the discrepancy. The first three Gospels are reading it through their own Galilean lens. Northern Judea, they're men of Galilee as Jesus was, and they were reading it through that lens. The day of preparation for them was on the Thursday, whereas Christ was crucified on the Friday, whereas when John describes it, he's describing it from the perspective of the people of Jerusalem who would have seen the day of preparation as the Friday, leading into the crucifixion of Christ. So that's my little rabbit trail. So I'm bringing you back now on track. I wanted to explain that. I got you through the valley of the shadow of death, and now we're going to get back on to more stable ground here. Okay? I hope that helps. Back to the from the explanation. So what I've noted is that the disciples were very meek in desiring to prepare the Passover. They were desired to obey Jesus. There was a meekness to them. There was a want to obey God. But note that their meekness and their desire to obey the scriptures of the Old Testament is coupled with a meekness to simply follow Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? See what they're doing? They know the Passover has to be eaten. They're going to prepare it. They're going to prepare it in detail. And what do they do? They go to Jesus and say, where do you want us to do this? They've, they've been with him long enough. They know that if the master's going to take them somewhere, they better follow the master to where he's going to get them to go. 
So you're going to walk on the water, you follow the master. The master's going to decide to multiply fish and loaves, he's going to do it. The master's going to take you somewhere, he's going to take you somewhere. But what they've done is they've come to the master wanting to obey the scriptures, and they've come to the master wanting him to lead them or point them to where he wants them to go. And all as I'm trying to highlight in this little first portion of the text is their desire to follow. And that should be us. That should be you. A meek desire to follow the Lord. Coming to the Lord and saying, how Lord, where Lord, when Lord, what Lord? My master, how do you want me to do this? Dear master, when do you want me to do this? Master, how have you revealed for us to do this? Verse 17 is a posture of meekness worth emulating. It's an example to follow. They come to Jesus wanting to obey God, seeking to follow his lead. The disciples' meekness. But let me move on to my second point. My second point is the Savior's delight. We've seen the disciples' meekness. And what I want to highlight to you now, having highlighted the disciples' meekness, is the Savior's delight. We see how much in this text the Savior delights to be with his very own people. He's given them instruction to find a room in Jerusalem and a house to eat. And this points to, I'll develop this, you'll see this, this points to his delight to be with his people. He enjoys it. Are you one of God's people? You're born again. You know the Lord. He likes being with you. He enjoys your presence. He wants fellowship with you. But, but let's, let's look at the text. I'll, I'll explain. He gives them some instructions in verse 18. He says, he answers their question, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? He said to them, verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him. So this certain man could be translated, go into the city and find so-and-so. So what's going on here is he's, Jesus knows who he's talking about. The disciples know who he's talking about likely, but he just doesn't, Matthew doesn't mention his name, and he's just described as so-and-so or a certain man in this text. And then Jesus says, having said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, he says, this is what you're supposed to say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. That's important. My time is at hand. And what's going on here? This is with the backdrop of his death coming. That's what my time is at hand means. God in his decree has determined that the time of Christ's substitutionary death is at hand. His time to be crucified is imminent. And so if you want to describe Christ's ministry, his entire ministry has been like a conveyor belt towards the cross. So, for example, Matthew 16, 21, and Matthew 17, verse 12, and Matthew 20, verse 28, and Matthew 26, verses 1 through 2, even in this chapter, all of it is Jesus moving to the cross. His face is towards suffering and dying for sinners. And everything is pointing to this darkness that is falling upon them. And so when Jesus says, my time is at hand, he's saying, we're almost there. I'm about ready to die. They're about ready to kill me. 
And, and the word time here is not speaking of chronologically, it chronologically playing out. It's actually speaking of a predetermined event. The event is about to happen, in other words. So with that in mind, okay? So keep that in your mind. Darkness has come. The time is at hand. The predetermined death of our Lord is imminent. And what's on his mind? Let's go on in verse 18. He said, go into the city, find a certain man, and say to him, teacher. The teacher says, my time is at hand. His death is coming. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Think about this. Let's, let's meditate on this for a bit. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Not with him and his family, but with his disciples who were a family, as John Gill said. He was going back into Jerusalem knowing that's where the people were who wanted to kill him, knowing, and I've already explained, that's where he's going to die. In, in, in essence, what he's doing with his disciples here is he's saying, prepare the way for my final journey. I am entering into Jerusalem, Jesus is indicating. I'm about to enter in. And what I want you to do is I want you to prepare my final journey as he goes down there to die. Because we already know he's going to die in Jerusalem. He knows that. We've already been told that's where the bad people that are plotting to kill him are, the men of power. They're sharpening their knives, waiting for an opportunity to kill him. And he says, my time is at hand. He knows he's about ready to die. And he says, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. You see what's on his mind here? It's on his mind to keep the Passover as God instructs. And it's on his mind to be with his people. With all of this pressure on him in this moment. Now, if you knew that you were about to be brutally murdered within hours, what would you ask to be done for you? Jesus says, go down into the place where they're going to kill me and murder me and make a meal, and I'm going to come down and eat with you guys. Why? Because he loves the presence of his people. He wants his last time before the crucifixion to be with his very own people. He delights to be with his people. He counts these delights, in fact, to be more important to his own life because him going down into Jerusalem to be with his people for the Passover feast is actually going to cost him his life because he's basically going into the belly of the beast. That's where they're going to kill him. So this move, he could have escaped up to Galilee and ran. He's like, nope, I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. I'm going down there to die, and I'm going to have a good time with my people before they kill me. He's, the, 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 you see, the price of this Passover meal is his own life. It's going to cost him. And as we think about that, Passover finds its final fulfillment in the death of Christ. I've already talked about that. His is the blood of the Lamb that protects us from the wrath of God. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that's why we don't celebrate Passover anymore because it's fulfilled in Christ completely. But we also remember that the Passover points to the death of Christ, which points to the Lord's Supper. So in one sense, the Lord's table points us back to the death of Christ, right? Which points us back to the Passover. 
So there's a connection between the Passover and there's a connection between the Lord's Supper. And so as the Passover, so the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated with God's people. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus is specially present with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's there with us as we celebrate it. And so, so keep all of that in your mind. Jesus is saying, I'm going down to Jerusalem to eat with my people. He knows that's going to cost him his life. In fact, he says it. My time is at hand. That tells me that he is willing to die in order to spend time with his people and have fellowship with them. And in fact, you know what? He actually died so that he can fellowship with us. Not just the disciples in Jerusalem, but he died so that he can fellowship with us and we can fellowship with each other. This is the purpose of his death. So that we can gather together and fellowship with the very Son of God. He set himself up to be crucified. He went to eat with his disciples, which was going to cost him his life. But the price of his life furnished us, bequeathed us, the ability to have fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. Why? Because he loves that. He enjoys that. This is the delight of Jesus Christ is to invite you into the triune relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to come to God through Jesus Christ and sup with him, as it is said here, to eat with him. Do you see where this is going, by the way? I hope you can draw some application. The gathering of God's people cost Jesus his life, and Jesus' death opened the way for the gathering of God's people. Repeat that. The gathering of God's people in Jerusalem on that evening cost Jesus' life, and his life paid the price so that God's people can gather. This is how important the gathering is. That's what I'm trying to say. He delights in it. He loves it. And and if we delight in God's will and we understand the gospel promise of fellowship with God and that special fellowship with God that we enjoy when the people of God gather, if we understand that, what that tells me is that we should be faithful to gather together, especially for the Lord's Supper, even if it costs us our life. You see? Because we delight in God's will as Christ did. We delight in each other's presence as Jesus has taught us to. And we know our Savior delights to be with us when we gather. All of this is pointing to the heart of Christ. Moving into Jerusalem to be with his people, knowing he's going to die. And it's it's tragic that the past couple of years, Christians have excused not gathering out of fear or fines of sick or sickness. Whereas the cost of this gathering was his own life, and the cost of every other gathering since has been his own life. The fellowship of the church. It's tragic. You can't celebrate the the Lord's Supper on the internet. By its very nature, it is the gathering. You think if Jesus had had an iPod, he would have stayed up there in Bethany and zoomed in to the meeting of the Last Supper in order to escape the pain that was to come? Look, the 
gathering face to face and breathing the same air and eating the same food as each other is something that is so special to Jesus that he moves into Jerusalem knowing what it's going to cost him. If our Savior delighted in God's will enough to have the Passover and delighted in the presence of his disciples enough to gather them before his execution, all under the threat of death. Some of you thought it was scary when police chased you after church. Look, they weren't chasing you to crucify you. This is what was going to happen after the supper. That's how they're going to find him. He's going to be in Jerusalem. Judas is going to show up at the Last Supper. And that's where he's going to find out where Jesus is. They're going to track him down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they're going to kill him. If you thought that it was a scary thing for the police to find you over this, well, how about going down to Jerusalem to eat the Last Supper, knowing that, yeah, they're going to find you, and they're going to find you, then they're going to torture you, and they're going to flay their, your flesh, and they're going to kill you by nailing you to a cross. That was the price of that Last Supper, and that's been the price of every Lord's Supper since. The gathering of God's people. Whether it's fear of sickness, fear of fines, fear of imprisonment, fear of torture, or fear of crucifixion, God's people must gather. It's precious. It's delightful. Our Savior here delights in it. He delights in obedience, and He delights in the gathering. And Matthew Henry said so well on this. He says, Where, whoever, or wherever Christ is welcome, He expects that His disciples should be welcome too. And when we take God for our God, we take His people for our people. The gathering of God's people around Jesus Christ. With death creeping in, we see what's most important to Jesus. And paramount to His mind is His gathering with His disciples around a meal. His death is pressing in on Him. In your most trying moments, where do you run? To whom do you run? For Jesus, he wants to be with his disciples in obedience to God. That's my second point. That's my second point. The first point was about the disciples' meekness. The second is about the Savior's delight. And now the, the third, now the third and final is about the pursuit of obedience. Look at verse 19 here. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They pursue obedience. Now contrast verse 19 with verse 16. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see the difference? One man, Judas, is focused on one thing. How can I betray the Lord? How can I betray the Lord? How can I betray the Lord? Another group of men are focused on another thing. I think this is only a couple of disciples at this point in time, as John indicates. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They pursued obedience when they were given the command of Christ. Judas had a single eye to betray him. The disciples had a single eye to obey him. As David Dixon said, it is the part of true disciples to follow Christ's directions in all things. Their pursuit of obedience was detailed and thorough in preparation of this supper. They carried the lamb through a crowd of millions to be slain in the temple. And as John Gill tells us in his commentary on it, it was, he was flayed, he was cut up, the fat was taken out and burnt on the altar, and its blood sprinkled on the foot of it. They then brought it to the house where they were to eat it. 
Here they roasted it and provided bread and wine and bitter herbs and a sauce called keroseth into which the herbs were dipped. There's detail. Now, any one of you who's ever prepared a meal for your family and you've laid out the spread and the cutlery and you've made it look all nice, it's, it's, there's, there's several things that go into this, right? There's the spread, so it's, you're, it's appealing to the eyes. There's the smell, it's appealing to your nose. And then there's the taste and the texture, texture of the food. All of this kind of works together in the meal. And so all of these details are important, and the disciples are, are carrying it all out. So you've done this for your family, perhaps. Well, could you imagine doing it for 13 grown men who've been walking around a lot? Jesus spent the whole early part of the week preaching. These are 13 grown men that they're having to prepare a meal for, Jesus and the 12 disciples. And by the way, hospitality and the sharing of meals is a most Christian thing to do. So I hope you do that. You should really make a habit of having people into your home for meals and doing it very nicely and treating them as guests, just as Jesus' disciples did right here. It is, the most Christ, it is a most Christian thing to do is to sit down and eat together and especially to sh show hospitality, to share a roast together, to share a bottle of wine together, to share a loaf of bread together, to share some potatoes together, to share all of these things together. It is a very Christian thing to do and then to enjoy the food, enjoy each other's presence and then enjoy, um, enjoy the company and the fellowship that you experience in the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And these disciples went through all of this detail to prepare the Passover for Jesus. And the disciples came into Jerusalem together, and the 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples, sat down and they ate, where we'll get next week. We have the disciples' meekness, we have the Savior's delight, and then we have the pursuit of obedience. This is a very warm story about the fellowship that Christians should enjoy with each other, and the fellowship that Christians should enjoy with their Savior as they enjoy fellowship with each other. Are you enjoying this fellowship with God's people and the Savior? Do you enjoy the Savior? Do you enjoy being with Him even as you're with God's people? Because today I want to invite you into the warm fellowship of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come into fellowship with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Be born again and have all of your sins forgiven. Become one of us. Become part of the family of God and experience the warmth of this fellowship that Christ has opened up with everyone. Experience the delight of Jesus Christ to be with you. For Him to be in your presence and for you to be in His presence. And then as you experience this delight of Christ, the delight of Christ's heart, and as your heart learns to delight in Him and delight in His people, learn what it is to pursue Him. But come to Jesus and meet this tender Savior that even with death on His mind, He wants to have fellowship with His people, and He dies in order to have fellowship with His people.